And it's very fitting that we should talk about Turkey today because we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And so if you'd like to turn there, please do. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Revelation 2. And Revelation 2 and 3 are um, all about seven churches, letters to seven churches. And these are letters, you could say, from heaven because they're letters from the exalted risen Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And so we've been talking about Turkey. We're going to continue to talk about Turkey in a sense by looking at what we find here in Revelation chapter 2 this week. We'll go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 3 next week so we can keep this together as a unit. It's a very fitting thing uh, for us to talk about in light of the fact that our meeting on Saturday that we, we mentioned is very much about um, seeking to evaluate the life of our body. And that's what we find in Revelation 2 and chapter 3 is uh, the Lord Jesus' evaluation of these churches. And so we might just want to begin by asking the question, would you like to receive a letter from Jesus today? And what do you think that letter would say if you received a letter from Jesus? What do you think he would say to our church if he wrote us a letter today? Now, as I've mentioned before, C.S. Lewis highlighted the fact that uh, he said, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. And so it could be a fearful thing in a sense to receive a letter from Jesus because it might highlight some real weaknesses in our lives. And we'll actually see that in these letters. But it's helpful to back up a little bit and remember something that the Jesus we're talking about here who's writing these letters to these churches is described in chapter 1, verse 5 as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So he's writing to those who are believers who are forgiven of the very sins he's addressing if he addresses those sins. And he's writing as someone who loves them more than they can fully comprehend. And so if Jesus were to write us a letter today, it would be from a heart of full and lasting, unrestrained love. And if he were to point out sins that needed to be addressed, they would be forgiven sins because he died for those sins, for all those who are trusting him. And so it's helpful to keep that in mind because he goes on to say uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, write in a book what you see, speaking to John, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so that's what we find in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, the letters that uh, John wrote uh, under uh, the leadership of the Lord Jesus in um, addressing these churches. You could probably think about this in terms of a performance review. Uh, some of you have those kinds of things. That you're, as an employee of someone, you might periodically have to sit down with your manager or your boss and they will give some sort of performance review where they will highlight typically uh, strengths, and weaknesses. Uh, they may talk about things you could do to improve, to grow in your uh, professional life, in your job. Uh, they might encourage you to pursue certain goals. They might even mention certain rewards for those goals. If you reach those goals, all kinds of things might be mentioned. And that's really, in a similar sense, what we find in Revelation 2 and 3 is a kind of performance review uh, before the ultimate performance review. Because there is a performance review, it's called the final judgment, where we will stand before Jesus and he says, I will judge your works. Now, as believers, we won't be condemned because we've been forgiven through Jesus, but that doesn't mean he won't evaluate our lives. And that's why in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about his return, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about, is the return of Jesus. In Matthew 24, at the end of that, he talks about um, faithful servants and the importance of being a faithful servant 
before they have to stand before him when he returns. Then in chapter 25 of Matthew, there's the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, where it's all about being ready and about being faithful to what you're called to do. And so these letters are very much about encouraging God's people to be faithful and not to lose sight of what it looks like to be faithful. Because it's so easy to do that when you're in a secular culture or you're in a culture where there's other kinds of religions that are competing for your allegiance, which is exactly what we find in these churches. Uh, The shortest of these letters is the letter to Smyrna, which we'll look at today, as well as the longest letters, the letter to Thyatira, which we will also look at today, Lord willing, with the time that we have. Two churches receive no correction. Two out of the seven have only a positive performance review. Two churches receive no commendation. They have only a negative performance review. And three of them have mixed reviews. So it's kind of interesting uh, what we see in these seven churches. But all of them are addressed by the Lord based on his character. He tells them something about his character, and then he applies it to their situation. All of them are known by the Lord. He says, I know you. I know what's going on in your churches. I know what's going on in your life. He tells them what to do. He tells them what the consequences will be if sin isn't appropriately addressed. Uh, He tells them what the great rewards are of being faithful. And he encourages them to have ears to hear and to hear and not just uh, turn a deaf ear to what he's saying. One way to look at these letters is to think of them as uh, not the Lord uh, giving a detailed performance review, which is what you would find at the last judgment. Every word Every deed, every thought will be evaluated in a sense at the last judgment. But that's not the way it's characterized here. What the Lord Jesus does is he basically highlights certain things in each church that they need to address one way or the other. And the reason is, um, obviously you couldn't put in one book all the things that could be addressed, but he's basically saying these are the key things in your circumstances that you need to keep in mind. And they represent things that all churches need to keep in mind throughout the centuries. So they apply to these very real churches uh, with real people, with real problems in that day and time. But they apply to every church since then. They apply to Coast. And it's very helpful for us, for us to think about what the Lord says about this and to ask ourselves, what church might we be most like? Or What combination of churches might we be most like as we think through this? What, as individuals, what do we see in these churches that uh, we can see in our own lives one way or the other? C.S. Lewis also said, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. That's another way that it's important to hear what Jesus is saying here because Um, he's after making us good because he loves us, uh, because he wants what's best for us, because he truly wants our greatest happiness in him to be reality. Each of these churches um, are addressed uh, with this phrase, to the angel of the church. There's been a lot of debate over what that means. Uh, Some think it means the guardian angel of the church. Some people think it means the pastor of the church. All things considered, it probably means uh, write this to the spiritual condition of the church. Because at the end of each of these letters, it says um, to the spirit, um, hear what the spirit says to the churches. So it's not just about this one church. It's not just about this one angel per se it's about addressing a condition that's being found in that church that the lord wants to highlight and so what i'd like to do is just highlight some things obviously we don't have enough time to say everything that i'd love to say about each of these churches but i want to encourage us to think about uh, some key things that hopefully will help us in evaluating our own church and evaluating our own lives 
So let me read, first of all, just the letter to the first church in Ephesus, verses 1 through 7, which says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, or Nicolaitans. It's hard to know exactly how to pronounce that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I want to begin by just asking the question in light of the letter to Ephesus. Do you see the real danger of loving truth? I put that in quotes for a reason, but not loving people. The danger of being very much about and concerned with truth and doctrine and what's right, but not appropriately concerned about love. Um, Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You can say something that's very, very true, but it can be like the thrust of a sword, piercing someone, hurting someone, that doesn't bring healing, doesn't bring help, doesn't bring um, the kind of thing that Paul's talking about when he talks about speaking the truth in love. It's truth, but it's a sword that wounds and isn't helpful because it's not spoken in love. The the key to this um, passage is verse 4, where he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So that's the question for all of us. Have I left my first love? Am I like this church in some sense? Um, Ephesus uh, was a city in which they worshipped the goddess Artemis. And Artemis happened to be uh, a goddess who uh, swore not to get married. And she was a hunter. And so you could... um, see in that reality that you can be on the hunt for what's right and wrong. You can be on the the hunt for truth, but have really no interest in love. This uh, city also had a great library, and so it was associated with high learning. So you can be very much about learning things, but are you about loving people? Um, You notice in verse 1, it describes Lord Jesus as one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The idea of holding the seven stars is not to crush them. It's to care for them. It's to protect them. It's to meet their needs and watch over them. And to walk among them is kind of like a manager. It's kind of like a shepherd. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus as a loving shepherd who cares deeply for the church, for his people, and is very much aware of what is taking place. In verses 2 and 3 and verse 6, he talks about all the positive things in the church, and it's, it's quite the list. If you look at what he says in those verses about their perseverance, their toil, they're not tolerating evil men, uh, um, they've endured for Christ's namesake, they've not grown weary, they hate the deeds of this uh, false Um, gospel and religion, it sounds really great. And it's very consistent with what we find in Acts chapter 20, where Paul talks to the um, elders in Ephesus before he leaves. And he says, be aware of false teachers that will come into the church and will arise even among your own group. And so there was clear warning about that, that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders that elders in that church. And yet later on, he would tell Timothy, who went to minister in Ephesus, to make sure that people did not teach 
um, strange doctrines. And yet he reminded Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love in that very same passage. So he says, Timothy, I want you to go to Ephesus and I want to make sure that you um, fight against those who are uh, disseminating false teaching. But remember that the goal of our right instruction is love, not just the elimination of false teaching. And so the Lord Jesus in this passage calls them to repent. In verse 5, he says, do the deeds that you did at first. And so the question is, you know, what is the Lord Jesus talking about when he says you've left your first love? And you're to do the deeds that you did at first. Well, it appears, all things considered, that he's focusing on especially our love for each other in the body of Christ. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then in 1 John, 1 John uh, Three, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then he goes on to talk about whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue or just with doctrine, but indeed in truth, that um, we're called to love each other in the body of Christ and even those who aren't Christians. He says in 1 Thessalonians, May the Lord calls you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. And so the Lord is saying your commitment to the truth isn't an end in itself. Your commitment to the truth should be a commitment to loving people. We're to hear the truth and we're to trust God's love for us in Christ. And then we are to lay down our lives to love other people the way God loves them in the church and outside the church. And so Jesus says the, the consequences of not doing that, just being about doctrine but not about love, is that he says, I will remove your lampstand. As I understand it, there is no church of Ephesus in Ephesus today. The consequence would be you will no longer be a lampstand. Now, that doesn't, mean they, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation, those who are true believers, but it does mean that church, that assembly of believers, stopped being a, an assembly of believers. And so he encourages them by saying, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes the temptation to be all about truth but not about love, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, which means I will give them eternal life which means there, there should be not only a faith in the truth, but a love that flows from a faith in the truth. That is an evidence that we are truly his. Well, let me just wrap this up in terms of this section by just encouraging us in this way. Um, John Newton talked about the fact that in his day, um, there were people who were very much about uh, Calvinism, and doctrine, but the way that they carried themselves, it was a hindrance to the gospel rather than a help to it. He said, of all people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to the exercise of gentleness and moderation. The scriptural maxim that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God is verified by daily observation. He says, if our zeal, zeal for the truth, zeal for doctrine, just like in the church at Ephesus, if our zeal is embittered by expressions of anger, invective, or scorn, we may think we are doing service to the cause of truth, when in reality we shall only bring it into discredit. I think that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And that's why he uses the illustration that I've mentioned many times, where he talks about um, a man truly illuminated um, will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. See, we believe, as those who believe in Reformed theology, that it takes the work of God to open people's eyes to see the truth. And therefore, to whatever degree 
people see the truth or don't see the truth, uh, we know that it's to God's glory. And God has to open their eyes. And therefore, we should be patient and kind, like it says in 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are, who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so we love people. We speak the truth in love, but God has to change people. And so it's against our trust in God's sovereignty to not love them in sharing the gospel and ministering the truth, whether inside the church or outside the church. And so the heart that's being expressed through this letter is God cares more about whether we love people like he does than whether we hold a certain doctrinal position or whether we uh, can cross all our T's and dot all our I's. Now, I'm going to talk about the other side of the coin in a minute, but Paul can say the goal of our instruction, the goal of our truth is love. So if our theology doesn't make us more loving toward those who disagree with us as well as those who agree with us, then we have caught the Ephesian virus. And we have to think about that. We have to pray against that. We have to be careful of that. And that's why the Lord put this in the Bible for all of us individually and as a church that we might be aware that this is a a test, a temptation uh, for all of us in every age. Secondly, look at the uh, church in Smyrna. It says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The key to this letter is in verse 10 where he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do you fear what you might have to go through before you get to heaven? Most Christians will say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just afraid of what I might have to get to before I die. What I might have to go through. What pain and suffering is on the way to heaven. And that's why C.S. Lewis, again, could say, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Right? We believe that God is the best, and he does what's best for his children. But sometimes that means, like getting a letter like this, where Jesus says, you're going to suffer, but don't be afraid of what you are going to suffer. It's interesting that this city, its name uh, was related to myrrh, which was related to mourning. So even in the name of the city, it's related to mourning and suffering. And this city was actually destroyed in 580 BC and then was rebuilt in 290 BC. So it died and it rose again. And what we see in this letter is the Lord Jesus who says in verse 8, I am the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. So he's basically saying, I am your eternal home. I've always been here. I'll always be here. And I am your refuge. I am the first and the last. I am in charge of it all from A to Z. And I am the one who brings life out of death. So you don't have to fear whatever death you must die, whatever suffering you must go through. Um, he commends them in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your po- poverty and how you're blasphemed by those who say they're basically God's people, but they're really not. And he says in verse 10, don't suffer, or excuse me, don't be afraid of what you're suffering, but be faithful unto death. Now, when he says... Um, 
you'll be tested, you'll have tribulation for 10 days. That's a short amount of time, that 10 days. All of this is written figuratively. I mean, it's in a book that's figurative. So a lot of this is figurative. But when he says you're only going to suffer 10 days, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be back on the streets of Smyrna after a short time. It may mean they will be in heaven in a short time. One or the other. But his encouragement is in verse 10, uh, where he says, Be faithful unto death. What is the temptation? Not to be faithful. Uh, Because we can be afraid of what we might have to go through if we hold on to our confession of Christ. If they say, deny Christ, or we're going to kill you, or deny Christ, or we're just going to make your life miserable. Whatever it might be, we can be afraid of whatever that suffering might be. And it's not to say that the Lord doesn't realize that, yes, that's going to be the fear that we're um, tempted with. But he says you need to fight to overcome that fear, the, the paralyzing aspects of it. I mean, most people will say in very difficult situations, courage is not the absence of fear. It's acting even though you have fear. So we can, in a sense, um, have a very real fear of things and yet not be paralyzed by that fear, not be uh, caused to deny Christ in the midst of that, but find through trust in the promises of God, grace to be faithful regardless of what feelings we have. You can't control your feelings, right? But you have to hold on to the promises. And so he promises them in the last part of um, 10 and 11. He says, I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, um, which all is a promise of reward. The crown of life was like a laurel wreath that those who uh, were triumphant athletes would receive at the end of their race, that you made it through and you got the reward. It says in James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so um, this is sort of like what uh, happened with John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. And before he went, uh, 15 years before he was going to go, there were other missionaries who showed up on the island that John Patton was going to go to as a Scottish missionary. And these who went before him were immediately killed and eaten by cannibals. And somebody said to John Patton, after Patton said, I'm going to go, uh, this Mr. Dixon said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And John Patton said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They are to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's the kind of faith that the Lord Jesus is calling us to have. I might have to die for the sake of the glory of Christ. I might have to suffer in certain ways, but as Maul highlighted, he promises that he will be with us and that his grace is sufficient for us and that if we do die for the cause of Christ, we will be raised to glory and we will receive the crown of life. John Patton was one who would say at one point he was chased up into a tree of people who were trying to shoot him and kill him. And he says, it was in that tree that I met Jesus, where I sensed and felt the love and presence of Jesus in a way that I'd never felt his love and presence before. He said, if, um, he said, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul And when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow, as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. He goes on to ask the question, if thus thrown back upon your own own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? And if you're a Christian, you answer, yes, I do. 
I have a friend who will not fail me. And it's actually in those kinds of situations that we often experience Jesus in greater depths and in greater ways than we ever have before. And so the Lord has a reason for encouraging us not to be afraid of meeting him in the darkness and meeting him in the depths and meeting him in suffering. Paul could tell Timothy, who was a very timid person, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline or a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So the heart of uh, what this letter is saying is, it, is that God wants us to be at peace and not to be afraid of what is to come, whether it's in the next five minutes, five days, five years, or whatever. And if we have a paralyzing and wor- worse, worrisome fear of suffering and death, whether it's of COVID or anything else, we're being tempted with what you might call the Smyrna Syndrome. There's a reason why the Lord said, be faithful because they were being tempted not to be faithful. And so he speaks words that are meant to address right where they are and maybe right where a lot of us are in this day and time in this country. The third church is Pergamum. Let me read that for us. It says in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So we can start by just asking the question, uh, do you see the real danger of loving people but not loving truth? First question in Ephesus, do you see the real danger of loving truth but not loving people? This is the flip side of that. The uh, loving, quote, people, or loving, quote, unquote, people, but not loving the truth. Um, Again, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis a lot today, but he said, Love is not simply affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. How do you determine what a person's ultimate good is? You have to know the truth. It's the truth that tells us what a person's ultimate good is, which is God, and that it's only through Jesus that we can actually enjoy God. And so you can't have a real love of someone without the truth guiding what you think and feel and do and say. In this city, uh, it was a city known for pagan worship and especially emperor worship. And so there was this temptation to worship the state and to worship other gods. But it was also a city that, like a lot of other cities like Corinth, um, believers were tempted to uh, get back into idolatry and to get back into the commonly held um, attitudes and actions with regard to sexual activity. And so that's why what we see in this letter is a uh, condemnation of those who are embracing idolatry, and it's talking about real visible idolatry, and immorality, and that the believers in this church were falling back into that. As someone has said, confusion regarding food sacrificed to idols and appropriate sexual conduct was widespread among early Christians who had converted from paganism. And the way the Lord Jesus is described here as, he simply says in verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God 
is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a reference to the fact that Jesus is a just judge, because that, that, the sword was actually the symbol of the Roman government, the symbol of justice, and therefore it's a picture of Jesus as judge, but a just judge according to the word of God. And so he's saying there are things happening in your church that are clearly inappropriate in light of my word. And you need to deal with it. You need to exercise some church discipline. And if you don't, I'm going to bring some judgment. What kind of judgment is that? Is that condemnation? Not if they were Christians. One of the things that's interesting about these letters is uh, all these letters treat every church as a real church. But it does not mean every person in the church was a true believer. The Lord Jesus talks about the fact that there are wheat and tares, that there are believers and unbelievers oftentimes in churches. And so there could be judgment brought on people in the church who weren't true believers that would be as a result of their sin um, and would be justice, whereas there would be those in the church that were true believers and, and Christ would discipline them. Just like he disciplined the believers in Corinth when they were acting up at the Lord's Supper, he said, Paul said, some of you are sick and some of you have died. And it says the reason why that happened is that they might not be condemned with the rest of the world. It was a loving thing for the Lord Jesus to actually bring some discipline into the church and maybe even take some of them home. And so um, that's one of the things that stands out in the New Testament. Reading the book of Acts, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, you, you realize that it's not just um, empty talk when Jesus says, I walk among my churches and I am active in my church and I'm concerned about the purity of my church. I, I love those I died for and I'm concerned about their lives individually. I'm concerned about their lives as a church. And so obviously he commends them for being faithful in a city that was so much about emperor worship and pagan worship. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name. So he highlights the good that he sees in the church, but he doesn't hold back from saying, but there are some things you guys really need to deal with. And for most of us, that's what Christ would say, wouldn't he? He would highlight um, evidence of grace in our lives. It's his grace, but it would be evidences of grace in our lives but he'd also point out, this is something you really need to work on because this isn't like me. This isn't consistent with my word. And so um, that's why he says, I have a few things against you because there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, the t- uh, Nicolaitans, uh, which is all about um, basically uh, being involved in um, idolatry and immorality. And he says in verse 16, therefore repent, or I am coming to you. In the book of Revelation, sometimes the references of Jesus' coming is about his coming at the end. In this case, it's about him coming to the church before the end to help them get right in terms of what was taking place in the church. And so, um, again, C.S. Lewis, he says, Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal which means Christ can say, can say to us, I've forgiven you of all your sins and I love you perfectly and I'm going to work on that sin in your life. That's what he was saying to that church. I, I've forgiven you and I love you perfectly. I could not love you more and I will not stop loving you, but we're going to work on that sin in your life because that is keeping you from enjoying me, that's, in, that's keeping you from loving the people around you. That's a poison in your church that needs to be dealt with or a poison in your life that needs to be dealt with. And he's, he says that the promise will be in verse 17, to him who overcomes, uh, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, ultimately, Jesus is the manna from heaven, he said. And he will receive a white stone. The white stone probably reserve, uh, um, is a picture of, um, you could say, a vaccine passport. 
It gets you into the building. It gets you into the restaurant. It gets you into the um, Feast of the Lamb. It was something that says, I will give you entrance into all that will truly satisfy you if you reject what the world is offering you in these pagan feasts and the immorality that goes with it. Um, And so what we have here is what you would call a faithful but unsound church. Um, The church before it was a faithful but fearful church. The church before that was a church that loved truth but wasn't loving. And so here we have a, a faithful church in various ways, and yet they are a church that needs to deal with the the sin that's in their midst. Uh, Charles Spurgeon could say, those who do away with Christian doctrine are, whether they are aware of it or not, the worst enemies of Christian living. So what he's saying is, you have to have Christian doctrine to have Christian living, Christian loving. It goes together. You can't throw out either one. You can't be all about doctrine and forget love, nor can you be all about love and forget doctrine. You can't say, you know, we just need to um, include all the LGBTQ people and just include them and love them and forget about what the Bible says about that. That's not loving them uh, any more than it's loving to say, we're not going to arrest people who shoplift. We're just going to ignore the fact that the Bible says, uh, thou shalt not steal. We're going to love them because they're probably stealing because they need it. That's not loving them even though people will argue that's the loving thing to do one way or the other. So there's so many ways in which our society will argue for love apart from truth. And the Lord Jesus is saying, don't fall prey to that in your culture. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Spurgeon could talk about it in terms of um, if the children are being poisoned Uh, in the food that they're being given, don't simply open the window so they can breathe easier. Isn't it loving to open the windows so they can breathe easier? Yes, but deal with the poison in their bread. Deal with the poison in their church. And so the heart of God in all this is that we have to be concerned about the truth if we're concerned about love. If we're really concerned about love, we have to be concerned about the truth. And we always want to make sure those things go together. Otherwise, um, we become uh, infected with the Pergamum pandemic. You want to think about it in those terms. The last church is the church at Thyatira. Verse 18 and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and servants and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This one is very similar to the one before if you notice that. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The last question is, do you feel the social and economic pressure to simply do what the culture and country requires of you? So what's happening here, don't have a whole lot of time, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but we live in a time like uh, where in and outs get shut down in San Francisco for not uh, being willing to enforce the vaccination 
mandates. Um, that's called economic pressure to comply. In this city, um, their, uh, the thing that drove them was industry, was manufacturing. And yet these trade guilds were associated with worship, pagan worship. And so to be involved in the trade guilds was to go to their meetings and to be involved in their feasts and actually to be involved in the worship of those pagan deities. So that in order to benefit from the economy, you had to be involved in compromise. And what was taking place was there was this false teacher in the body who was saying, you know what, I've got some information, which we could call the deep things of Satan. And maybe what was being involved there was the idea that, you know what, what matters is what's on the inside, not what you do with your body. So you can eat and you can be involved in immorality, but it doesn't affect your spirit. What's on the inside is what's important. So you can be involved in these trade deals. You don't have to suffer economic hardship by saying no, because what matters is what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. And so you have Christians who are being tempted to compromise. And yet Jesus is pictured as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, who sees and knows what the truth of the matter is. And his feet are like burnished bronze, who is ready to... um, exercise appropriate judgment, especially on the false teacher. It's all spoken in figurative language, but it's talking about disciplining this woman who's characterized as a Jezebel. It wasn't her real name, but she's like Jezebel in the Old Testament who led the people of God into sin, idolatry and immorality and worship of Baal. And the Lord Jesus says, I will judge her because I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent. And I will judge those, discipline those who are following her and doing what she's encouraging them to do, more than likely with regard to these trade guilds and the worship of pagan gods. And so Jesus calls them to repent. And yet he says, those of you who aren't involved in this, I place no other burden on you uh, other than you need to do the same thing I'm doing, calling them to repentance and he says those who are faithful he will give authority over the nations Uh, Thyatira was a considered an insignificant city in the Roman Empire and yet Jesus says you will be truly significant if you are faithful to me and he says that you will enjoy the um, morning star which is actually a picture of Jesus the warrior king you will enjoy me Uh, You'll enjoy satisfying fellowship with me if you remain faithful to me. And so you have a church that is in one sense growing in good deeds and yet tolerating this false teacher. And therefore, there are those who are caving into economic and social pressures to compromise their allegiance to Christ. John Bunyan spent 12 years in prison and he spent those 12 years in prison because he refused to simply say, I will not preach the gospel. At least what he would call the gospel. And he spent 12 years away from his family, his wife and his children. One of whom, one of these children that he had was blind. And he talks about how hard it was and how hard it was not only on him to be in prison, but for them while he was in prison, not being able to work and provide for them. They were suffering economically as well as spiritually and and, uh, in their hearts. He says, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place in jail as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, I love my family so much, he says, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Can you imagine in that situation some a man the head of his family that says, if I don't deny the gospel, my wife and my children won't have food on their table. That's the kind of pressure that's beginning to be put on people in our country. 
If you don't submit, you lose your job, can't feed your family. It's economic, it's social pressures that people are experiencing. The heart of God in all this is that we should oppose false teachers who encourage us to do what is not biblical, but we also need to trust God for our daily needs. Um, There's a reason why in uh, the book of Matthew, the Lord Jesus says that God feeds the birds and they don't have anything stored up. He just feeds them one day at a time because you might look in your cupboard and say, I don't have anything to eat. And God says, I will take care of you. Um, That's why Jesus, when he was tempted to make uh, stones into bread, said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which means it's not bread that keeps me alive. It's not my job that keeps me alive. It's not my job that keeps my family alive. It's God who keeps me alive. It's God who keeps my family alive. It's It's God's spoken word. It's God's sovereign word that provides for his people. And so um, we're being tested more and more with the question, if we follow Christ only when our bread is assured, then how can we know for sure that we're truly following Christ and not simply our bread? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we think about what your word says So you'd help us to ask ourselves, how do we need to trust you? How do we need to trust your love for us? Help us to ask the question, how do we need to love the people in our lives? How how do we need to love the people in our church? How do we need to be more faithful to you? And we pray that you'd help us to see what we need to see and that you'd grant us grace to do what we need to do in our own personal circumstances and in our circumstances as a church commit all these things to you. We thank you that you love us and you only speak these things to us through your word because you love us so much, because you died for us, which is what we will celebrate in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.